Welcome to the Existential Hope podcast, where we engage with passionate experts in science and technology to envision a brighter future for humanity. I'm your co-host, Beatrice Erkers, along with Alison Dittman. In today's episode, we have the privilege of talking to none other than Daniel Strachmann. Daniel is the co-founder and general partner of the 1517 Fund. Danielle is really someone who brings a unique approach to the table. She advocates for self-directed learning and alternative education models. She's been involved in groundbreaking initiatives like the FIEL Fellowship and the Innovations Academy. And she's really someone who's very committed to nurturing the next generation of visionaries. Before we dive into this conversation, I would like to take a moment to just tell you to please subscribe to the Hope Drop newsletter. That is a newsletter that you can find if you go to existentialhope.com. And if you go on there, you'll find very inspiring artworks created based on the prompts from the eucatastrophes, meaning like a positive vision of the future that we always ask about in these interviews. And so you can find very inspiring and visionary art showcasing positive future scenarios in there. Uh, and then you can also find other useful information like recommended resources that people in these interviews recommend or just um, the transcripts of the conversations. So I think without further ado, let's get started on this episode of the Existential Podcast with our guest, Danielle Strachmann. Welcome everyone to Fortnite's Existential Hope podcast. Really happy to have Danielle Strachmann here today. She's been to two vision weekends now within Foresight and people absolutely can't get enough of you, I think, within our community. So really happy to have you finally on for podcast because I think you have a lot of like individual and nuggets of wisdom. Uh, I think that is especially really interesting our younger cohort. And so really excited to chat with you. But you're obviously a co-founder and general partner in 1517. You're really involved with the tier fellowship before and are still gradually involved in you. Really, I think, so focus on supporting stages in their career, basically like sniping uh, the status quo and encouraging them to, to think big, to dream big. And I really, I think, try to pave them the way a bit forward into what is more like a pretty unconventional pathing that I think many people will thought that I think also find quite familiar actually these days. And so thanks a lot for the wonderful work that you do and the kind of grab, drop hours, renegades, revolutionaries that you support. And we're really excited to dig into a little bit more about what that means and your positive ambitions, I think, uh, in general and how we can get there. Um, okay, so as a first question, I think it would be really wonderful to hear from you just that I think this sort of like notion of supporting talent, especially the pretty ambitious types, seems to be this like red thread that is almost like pulling through real life. And I'm really curious to hear a little bit more like your journey and like how you came to like really co-found 1517, the work that you've done before and yeah, how you got really interested in this very niche area that, that I think we share. Yeah, no, absolutely. First, before I even answer that question, I just have to thank you all for the work that you're doing at Foresight Institute. I have been like tangentially a part of Foresight for almost 20 years at this point and I love Christine Peterson and the work that she did to launch Foresight almost 40 years ago. And I've been really thrilled with your leadership, Allison, and the leadership of the team and the direction that Foresight has gone because the vision weekends are like my favorite things now. And I don't say that lightly. So I tell everybody about it and I'm trying to get more people to come. So any Foresight person or listener who hasn't been go to a vision weekend, they're really incredible. Uh, and get more involved with Foresight is a great organization. So I just want to thank you for, for your work there because it's, yeah, it's, we're all, we, yeah, to your point, we have these similar visions of bringing together a more hopeful, prosperous, flourishing future. And, and you're really doing it. 
Yeah, cool. Thanks. And do you want to share a little bit more about what that means for you? Like yeah. how you're, especially with 15, 17, and your work before, like how you ended up in this very strange yeah. sector. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So gosh, yeah. What does that mean to me? I think the word, yeah, the word like, like prospering and flourishment really come to mind in terms of that we're able to scale good outcomes for people, whether that's through technology, through new scientific discovery. For me personally, a lot of what that looks like is personal freedoms and the ability to have agency in one's life at the micro level of maybe what a, an individual human thinks that they are capable of doing to the macro level around human rights and governments that support human rights and so on. So those are some of the things that I think about. The history, I'm trying to think where to start. Gosh, I guess where a lot of things start for me is actually when I got introduced to homeschooling populations. I started a tutoring company back in 2000 called Heightened Learning. And in fact, my super old website is still up. Heightenlearning.com, which kind of cracks me up. I'm like, oh man, that's old. But that's what the web is for, is keeping lots of archival data. But I was working predominantly with public and private school students and random happenstance, I started working with homeschoolers. And I had read a lot of homeschooling philosophy, but I hadn't gotten to work with them. And it's hard to break into those communities because they're understandably like protective uh, of the groups that they have. And it was so different when I started working with homeschoolers on this like agency side of things and not just the students, but the parents also like the whole family really embodied this phrase lifelong learning that you always hear people talk about. But I don't know that we get to see people really doing it that well. And so I would go over this first homeschoolers house I went over. It was just transformatively different, even walking in the door, because the children ran up to the front door. Oh, Danielle's here. Can we do reading and history and this? And can you stay for an extra two hours today? And then I'd stay and talk to the mom for another couple hours about pedagogy and homeschooling and <laughs> oppressive government on school and all this stuff. And so sometimes I'd be at someone's house for three to five hours and I was only supposed to be there for one hour. It's a good thing I didn't stack my schedule like back to back like I do now, sadly. But what I saw was that these children still had this like light and fire for learning and were enthusiastic and didn't see learning as a chore. And a lot of that was because that they were given this opportunity to do things at the time scale that would work for them and look into and study things that they were interested in and so on. And this really leads into some of the work at the Teal Foundation with the Teal Fellowship, because what I used to say about it is that it's an older young person's homeschool program. So that philosophy embedding, hey, we're going to say that some ideas just can't wait. That was our slogan. And the idea being instead of a young person going into debt, to pay to be learning in a classroom from somebody else who has a credential of some form or has some accolades that says that 
they know what they're talking about. And that somehow magically gets espoused onto you through a piece of paper called a diploma. We said, what if we gave people 100,000, which might be the same amount that they might go into debt for, but give it to them as a grant and give them the opportunity to learn by doing and see what happens with that. And this is super radical at the time. This was back in 2010 when we first launched the program. And no one was talking about the higher education bubble. Certainly in the mainstream, families weren't talking to their teenagers about is college the right path? And if they were the renegades, they were the real outsiders. And one other thing uh, that I meant to touch on a minute ago is that I think young people are used to being given maybe an award or a prize for something they've done in the past, but they're not used to being given money to support their potential in their future. And same thing with resources. And one thing that I find really inspiring today is there are a lot of different fellowship programs now that are supporting people in, hey, here are resources for your future instead of resources because you were able to do something in the past. And that is really important and also leads back into what we were talking about with flourishing and existential hope and things like that is that my belief is that if we give people these types of opportunities, we're going to see more progress across the board. And that's what we saw with the fellowship. So when we started the Teal Fellowship, it was, like I said, extremely experimental. And we were bringing people into the program that we thought could utilize these resources and make a real impact. In fact, the first fellowship, what did we call those? It was like a team powwow where we would get together and we had these huge binders on each person who was a finalist and it had mentor reviews in there. And Christine Peterson was one of our mentors who would come and review applications. And so we'd have those reviews in there. And then we had an event where people would practice pitching an audience on what they were doing and not like a Shark Tank pitch, more just, hey, what would you want to use this time and money for? And then afterwards, we'd have to decide who would be the 20 people that we picked for the fellowship. And we actually had this matrix on a board. I think people to this day still think, oh, and actually there's there are people out there who think that at 15, 17, we've created our own like Gen AI filters for all this. stuff, And like those Gen AI filters are just like our brains. Like we don't we don't do anything particularly special in that realm, except for we have trained on tens of thousands of applications and talking with young people and whatnot. But the first year we had this matrix on a whiteboard and gosh, what was it? I think, yeah, I think on the vertical, it was something like, like impact, like of the project. And I'm trying to remember what the horizontal app um, was now. I have a picture of it somewhere. I think it was something like, how much do we think that this particular person is like the right fit for that impact project. And, and so we were, yeah, we were looking for people who wanted to make a big impact uh, in the future and who we thought could get started on doing that. And we found some really amazing people. We worked with people like Laura Deming from the Longevity Fund. And she was not even 18 when she started her first fund to, and she had this insight of why should I be doing research when I think the real bottleneck is funding? And it was extraordinary to work with her and working with people like Vitalik Buterin from Ethereum before he had launched Ether, probably Michael and I's biggest, that's my co-founder who is also at the Teal Foundation with me. Our biggest financial mistake was that like we were like shouting from the hilltops that everybody 
should buy into the pre-sale of Ether. We were in a nonprofit, so we're like, it's a conflict of interest. We probably shouldn't be putting our own money into people's stuff. But lots of our friends made lots of money. <laughs> and so we're like, wow, that's so cool. So sometimes we joke about that, but I still stand with, hey, we were like being really above board. And this is, I don't think it would have been right to be in reviews with people who we were personally financing versus those who we weren't. But anyways, yeah, working with people like Vitalik before he had even launched the first sale of Ether, people like Dylan Field with Figma. And like I said, no one knew who these people were when we started working with them. But now these are household names to people. and. What we also saw was that investors did not take the young people we were working with seriously. This was all throughout the Teal Fellowship program. I would like talk to an investor and say, hey, we have this program. And I come with this lens of, as an educator with feedback and, and development. And so I would talk to an investor and be like, hey, would you give this person feedback on their pitch deck? Or would you talk to them about what they're doing and maybe just help them think about what's next? And They'd pet me on the head and be like, oh, we don't do that. Like, we don't do that, like nonprofit stuff. I was like, okay, <laughs> strange. But five years in, we were seeing some really incredible outcomes from people in the program. And it was still in the early days. And so Michael and I said, since investors are not going to take our young people seriously, maybe we just become investors. So we pitched our old boss, Peter Thiel, on what we wanted to do to scale the fellowship by starting a venture fund. We were talking to him because we wanted to get his blessing to leave the foundation. We were not pitching him for money. We were actually scared that he'd be like upset with us for wanting to leave. And instead, he got really excited in the conversation. And he says, how much are you guys raising? And maybe like 10 million bucks. And Peter did what he does. He's a very thoughtful person. He looks away and you can see the wheels are turning. And he turns back, he says, well, you should raise 15 and I'll be four of it. I was like, oh, my God, like we just got more money than we've ever gotten in an operational year at the nonprofit. Holy moly. I can't like I felt like I had robbed a bank or something. I smiled so big. I covered my mouth. I was like, I don't think he should know how happy I am right now. And that got us started. But that thread of that like homeschooling and agency and letting people follow their passions is something that's embedded in everything that we did at the Teal Foundation and also everything we do at, at 1517. And this also leads into some of the people we work with are like very sci-fi, deep tech scientists. That's the only time we will break our thesis of non-degreed people is if someone's in quantum computing or fusion. And actually our favorites are when they're still dropouts from undergrad and it's like the sci-fi tech. And we have a handful of those too. But those people also, once you're tracked in something that's the expectation is that you stay in that track place. And I had wonderful conversations with people at Vision Weekend who are scientists who are very much so tracked at large institutions and everything, grant money, journals, all of that are tied to staying within the lines and not doing something really funky outside of it. And so I think about this a lot in terms of how do we give resources to people so that they can do things that other people would think are otherwise like too far out there. But to me, that's actually how we push the bounds of what's possible. And I am not a scientist, so that's not my purview to do that. But I love to find those people and support them to do it. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's really cool to hear. I think your backstory makes a ton of sense though. I think seeing it like one by one in this backcasting way, I think it's interesting to see, especially with the homeschooling thing, now you have this big society, like a community that's 
bringing up around like David, David Deutsch's taking children seriously. I don't know how much you know that, but it's in like a childbearing philosophy that is often used yeah. by homeschoolers now these days. Yeah, yeah. And now it's a thing. Now it's find like it on Twitter. And yeah, and I think homeschooling is growing something like 8% per year right now, which is extraordinary. I remember when the pandemic first hit, I was like, didn't have it on my bingo card that like a pandemic would be the thing that would get everybody to try homeschooling. <laughs> Guess what? You have to do it. And I'm laughing about that, but it was both, I think, a very challenging time for families, but also really eye-opening for them too. And I remember my old roommate, she was talking to a friend and I, it, was on, it was on speaker so I could hear it, but I wasn't part of the conversation. And her friend has a first grader and the friend was talking out loud and knows nothing about my jam in that arena and said, yeah, we're really loving it. Like, our family feels closer and we're doing like fun things at home. And yeah, it's like hard and we didn't expect this, but we're also really enjoying it. I'm like, oh, that is so cool. That random friend of a friend is like jumping on the homeschool train. Yeah, I'm really curious to see, I think, how the train will still go because I think there's a lot more yeah. organizing now that is being done and a lot of like individual, almost like as educational entrepreneurs are trying to enter and just trying to really get this a little bit more streamlined and it's really a little bit more guided according to what the kid finds interesting versus what you have on that day on the menu. Well, and I even think I'm not as saturated in the independent study homeschooling communities as I once was, but it's interesting because there are many different types of homeschoolers. And one of the types that we used to talk about when I was in those communities was the school at Homers, which was the, you have the book curriculum and you're doing this. But then there were like the unschoolers who were very child led and just going out and doing all kinds of things. And there was like combos of all these different types of people. And so it's interesting to see that, yeah, there's a lot of different changes in that arena. And yeah, and people are much more open to it. I think 20 years ago, if someone was in a grocery store with their kid and it was during the school hour, it'd be like, oh, why isn't your kid in school? It's weird. And now I'm I'm sure people still ask, but they know what homeschooling is now, like the general population does. And there's still certainly misnomers out there about it. But just that it's common vernacular is a good thing. Yeah, I think one thing that I always wondered about this, especially if you're charting the path from, let's say, homeschool to uh, maybe even like an unconventional path where you immediately start a company or a project or something with people that are like-minded rather than going to university. If that's like really like the total dropout part from the very, very early stages, then I always wonder about how you find a community of like-minded folks. Because I think Robin Hanson has this like notion really about one of the functions of universities in particular, and maybe it's also similar about schools to some extent. It's mostly just it sorts people with other, like other smart or stamped as smart folks. And so that afterwards they have a wider network with which they can do things with. And I think that's always the one thing where I've been like a little bit curious about homeschooling or even just an alternative path that is not university-led, like creating these cohorts of people and like actually, and I guess that's partly what we're trying to do and what you guys are trying to do. Yeah. I think like having a more structured way of enabling people to nevertheless find like mind and folk with which they can do yeah. ambitious things. I think that's often a little bit like at least the thing that is on my mind of like, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there are more groups doing that. In fact, we have a company in our portfolio called Moonrise. And Moonrise was started by a set of homeschoolers who said, hey, we want community, but we don't want a school. What could this look like? And so what they've made is they call it a third space for children. And it's a place where children can come and do different projects. And there's facilitated projects and there's paid 
You can use the, they have like, they have a podcast studio. Wow, that is so cool. And I'm sure there's little training on, hey, here's how to use the equipment. But past that, like people can do what they want. They just did a, I think they did a field trip to, it's more like a trip. Not, it's not like a daily field trip, but they just did a, a trip to Costa Rica with a bunch of the families. And so the families are really loving that they can come together in this space and their children can come together and have community. But it's unbundled from, oh, and now they all have to be in the same grade and here's the curriculum and here's this. And so more and more groups, I think, are starting to do this unbundling and seeing that participating in communities doesn't have to be, it, it can be about the community itself instead of under the guise that we're here for some other reason. Yeah, I love that. I think even if you just look at San Francisco, there's a few intergenerational houses now as well, where people are trying to do this more in their home turf. Totally. They're trying to socialize across different generations and like offering different like shared homeschoolers and so forth. So I think it's been really interesting to see, but it's like the question is like, how do you scale it to some extent? But it's good to see different experiments and I wish there was a bit more sharing across them. But I think one uh, thing that I would be really curious to hear from you as well is like, why or like what kind of age do you think is good to focus at? Let's say as someone like you who like, was like really trying to support people getting an idea or like an ambitious idea of trying themselves out for the first time. What age do you find useful there to focus on? Like what's a bit too early? What's Where have they already drifted off into the mainstream? What, what's a good age bracket would you say? That's a good question. I'm in the younger, the better camp, getting people started early on making things, having agency, being individually or child led. I think is really important. We've been doing more work at 15, 17 teens. We just did a teen camp in early October and we brought 14 to 19 year olds together. And it was really fun and interesting. And that a characteristic that comes to mind a lot for the people we work with, no matter what their age is, is curious. People who are incredibly curious people. And I was talking to someone once who told me there's, uh, there are like, I, I think when you look into some of the research body around curiosity. Apparently people have typed it out into two types of curious. There are people who like to ask lots of questions, dig in on things. That's the type of curious I am. But then there's a a second type of curious, which is like the type of person who basically has to start experimenting or putting their hands on something or making something based on that curiosity. And I keep trying to cultivate more of the second curiosity myself for sure. But I think being able to give young people those opportunities to do more of that type two curiosity uh, is really important instead of saying, oh, you can't, my, I have cousins who are 20 years younger than I am. And when one of my cousins was a younger teenager, he like took apart the lawnmower. And the way that my aunt and uncle handled that was like, they were like, oh, interesting. Like he's really like into mechanics and like pulling things apart and putting them back together. And then as the adults in his life, they were able to say, I wonder what else you might like to do that with. And so now he's very much like on the path of making his career out of being someone who like is basically a mechanical engineer and someone who's really good in that realm. So for me, I don't know that there's a perfect age. I would guess that from a, yeah, I would just say to almost anybody, it is sooner than you think. Whatever you think is the age, it's probably earlier than that. They're like parents listening. It's you don't have to wait till they're 12 and have all the basics down to start doing cool projects and different things. The one thing I would say is that there is some interesting research out there that there does seem to be a real inflection point at middle school of if someone's um, spirit has basically been crushed 
by the time they get to middle school in like the realm of learning, people just drop off of stuff. Um, and that I think is a pretty sad state of affairs. And so I think it's important to capture uh, young people during that time and maybe give them more enriched activities, give them more agency and more autonomy. So ideally that drop off doesn't happen by the time they hit high school. So oh, that's my take on that arena. But it's also um, never too late. I'm also in the camp of, hey, if you're like, I don't know, in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you're like, oh, it's too late for me to take on something new. It's totally not. I have my own experience a little bit with this where this is just a simple example. But I started guitar lessons when I was 20 for a year. And then I carried around my guitar without taking lessons, without practicing for 20 years. And I felt same for me. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And I kept like, just every time I'd move somewhere, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to take the guitar out of the closet and bring it with me to the new place. And then I turned 40 a few years ago and I was having this deep, oh, I could have played guitar for 20 years had I actually kept it up. And then sometimes these thoughts pop into your head and you're like, oh, thank you for that one. And the thought was you could still play for 20 years, but you have to start right now. Like you can't keep waiting. And I was like, oh my God, that's right. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, all right, great time to start learning more guitar. And now I've been playing for three, soon to be four years and it's slow. I'm an adult learner and doing my thing, but I'm like, I feel really good about, I'm not in that, oh, I'll just keep waiting zone because there's no action there. Yeah. Never too late well, either. Maybe you're getting me over the hum of getting out of the waiting, out of the waiting yeah. zone. Into if the you start now, then the guilt like goes, it doesn't go away because the guilt is still, but you could have been better earlier. <laughs> so yeah, highly yeah, recommend. I guess you can be time for that. You can protect yourself as you kick the old self saying that to your 40 year old self you know, in, in, in that regard. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess it's like never too early, ideally before they drop off in middle school. But then also, if you haven't done it by then, don't give up. There's oh, still yeah. a chance for you to break out. And if you think about, I guess, the different age brackets that you've worked with, I guess you've also been going a little younger, right? The tier fellows were, I guess, roughly sometimes a little bit older than I think what you're, uh, the, the age bracket that you're serving so now. The Is there any difference in terms of how yeah. you support? Yeah. So when myself and Michael were at the Teal Foundation, we the application was for people 19 and under. So it was actually that we were working with people who were a little bit younger than what we're typically working now inside. Oh. Because with the fund, I'd say the average age is somewhere in the mid-20s. But that said, we have people we funded who are teenagers and funded with a million bucks, real funding. And then we also have people who fit our dropout thesis who are in their 60s. So it's like a very wide range. What we noticed when we were working particularly with Teal Fellows, and this is very much baked into what we do uh, with 1517, is that I think there's this misnomer out there that high agency people don't need support, that it's just, oh, they're high agency, they'll just go do the thing. But my sense is that high agency people need a specific type of support. And it usually, I like liken it to like a tree, like you might have all these different offerings or like a buffet table. You might have all these different offerings on the table. And instead of telling someone, well, you start at the beginning of the table and you have to go all the way through and do all like, that's what school tells you to do. We say, hey, here's a buffet table. And there's like lots of different offerings on it. And if you think 
these are going to help you like come eat. And if you think they aren't, then don't. And that's fine. And and on the sort of tree analogy, there's like lots of places for people to make a branch off of something and be like, oh, I would like 15, 17 did this or that. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, how do we add that in? Or how do we work with that person to thing new to the table? And then in addition, we do scheduled, we have process, like process is important. And one process we do that we did at the foundation that we also do at 1517 is we do reviews with people. So it's on the calendar to infinity until we're done with that relationship in some sense. At least for the first couple of years, we tend to do reviews with people every other month. And so just this heads up meeting of, hey, how's it going? And where do you need support? And what are you learning in this process? We also do an onboarding where we set expectations. And we're also starting to do processes too, where when it's time to close something down and wrapped up, also having like a closing out conversation around, okay, let's discuss what happened and where you want to go next and talk about the experience and so on. And so we do a lot of reflective practice with people and a lot of Socratic method. We don't come into teens or founders we work with saying, we know the thing that you need. I'm like, I don't know what you need, but it's more about supporting that dialogue to happen so that they can make the next choices in a supported fashion and also not feel like alone in some of their decision making. And have you like seen people become like, have you seen people changing over the past two years that you've done this? I, for example, we were really down bed three years ago. We received tons of applications in the teens and we were like, wow, this is must be something new. And now this year it has only ticked up. So I feel like people that are applying in least to are A, getting younger and more ambitious. Yeah. Uh, including like really 13 year olds that are starting yeah. companies to their parents. So I feel yeah. like if anything, yeah. I think they're really linking into that. But have you seen... Yeah. Either like other specific, for example, themes or focus areas that they find specifically interesting or is there a specific type of person, you know, that you often get? Um, we are seeing very similar things where we have been pleasantly surprised that because we had a, an insight a few years ago and we should probably start focusing on younger people moving more into learning more about high schoolers, for example. And yeah, we've been really amazed at what young people are doing today. Some things that we also see is access to um, information has been like free flowing for a while now, but access to being able to do things in spaces that were traditionally more difficult. It's still hard, but it's becoming like less hardware, for example, and robotics, things like biotech, even like young people setting up labs in their parents' basement kind of thing. And it's more possible to do this than it was before. Which is really interesting because, yeah, I'm really curious where that will go when the barrier to first entry on starting a project and something that would have been way harder to do 10 years ago. Does that move us to the forefront uh, in these areas? Because we have 13 year olds, I, ideally not blowing up the house, but making some progress on their work. Yeah. Is there anything that perhaps it's like you've learned as a red flag or something where you usually like, Oh, if this is happening, then we're like, we're taking a step back. Sure. I'm trying to think. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different sort of red flags, but they're like at different levels. We have a grant program, for example, and the red flag on a grantee is going to be different than the red flag on a founder we work with. But one thing that comes to mind is, yeah, something around not 
having the capacity to work with other people. And I wouldn't call it like a red flag per se so much as, okay, this is going to be really challenging. And if that person is a teenager, to me, that's just like a developmental milestone that needs to be massaged and met and very happy to work with those people on, hey, you know what? This other person is really curious about the types of things you're doing. Maybe you two should work together and try this out a little bit. Versus when it's more, we're looking at writing on a 500K check into a company and it's a a solo founder who's gripping the reins so hard that they can't have anyone else contribute to what they're doing. Like that for us is going to be like, and, and we're always really clear with our feedback. We would tell someone like that, we would really need to see at least a co founder or a team here with you because what we've seen with people who are like solo for too long is that there's usually a reason for that. And it's hard to push something along when you're like an army of one, you need more people. So that's one of the red flags that comes to mind. I'm trying to think if there's any other one, especially as we're in the topic of young people. The red flag that I see for young people today is they get very caught up and understandably so in the rat race of I need to look good for this other thing, whether it's I need to look good to get uh-huh. into school, I need to look good to get into this college, I need to look good for whatever. And what you end up seeing is a lot of the same for a lot of these young people. Like when we had our application for our camp, one of our questions was, tell me about something you like to do for fun. And this was not like a gotcha question. This was not like, this is where we want them to tell us about how amazing they are and some it and fun. And that's how a lot of the applicants answered the question. It was like, oh, I had so much fun doing this project for this other really prestigious thing. And I was like, the, I was, what I was looking for in that question was like genuine nature. And I had a woman who answered that question. She, we had a bunch of other questions that were more like, Tell us what you're irrationally passionate about. Tell us where you're like a super geek. So like they had many opportunities to showcase that. To signal. Yeah, exactly. And then this one young woman in the what do you like to do for fun? She wrote, I love to cook Lebanese food with my grandma. And I was like, her, she's exactly who I'm looking for. And so I think there's a lot of young people who are getting caught up in mimetic rivalry with their peers. And again, it's totally normal and a human thing to do. But I think they're going to come into a quarter life, 20s life crisis where they're going to say, wait, why did I do all those things? Like, and why did I abandon the things that I really cared about to like look good on some checkboxes? So that's well, as, long as, it's a, as long as it's a quarter life crisis and not just like a midlife crisis, as long as they're catching themselves early. But it's, it is this question of what is a weakness in you? And then it's, oh, I'm a perfectionist. It's just like very much like that type of <laughs> right. scenario. But it's mostly because they probably don't feel psychologically safe to actually like go and tell you what right. they want because they may not know you well enough. That yeah, you totally. just actually want and to yeah, to and absolutely. I think there's a lot of systemic pressure that is making that happen. Yeah. And I do think Gen Z is super savvy at seeing that a lot of that pressure is bullshit. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I, that generation is very much in the, yeah, we understand like institutions or systems and like that these systems apply pressures and a lot of it's artificial. And so it's, it's interesting to see that. So yeah, I just, I would keep pushing on more upcoming generations. Just continue to be sassy. <laughs> be yourself. <laughs> as much as you can. But you're right. There, there's a lot of different pressure and trust is 
hard to know why is someone asking you any question at all? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe then uh, that could be my last question. What do you think is like one really wonderful trait that you find where you're just like, oh, this is great. And especially since you already mentioned it, what's one thing that we can learn from the younger generation? Like when you see a specific thing in the application or even just like guiding through like gradually through a fellow or like a grantee or like even just someone that you like actually fund. Yeah. What's the kind of secret sauce that you're looking for? And maybe also something that's pretty unique to the next generation that we should be looking out more for and could be learning from them. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, that's a great question. First, I'll answer a little bit more broadly. One of the things that we look for is something that we call hyperfluency. And this is in people that are grantees. This is in people who are founders, like it's across the board. And hyperfluency is like this ability to talk backwards and forwards, like ad nauseum about a space that they really love. And it's like that passion where when the person is talking about something, they're like on the edge of their seat or they're the type of person who can't like not go up to the whiteboard and be like, but look, it it works like this and that. They're just like really. And part of that is they really want to bring their geekery to other people. And we say this at 1517, we collect social geeks. So it's people who love to geek out about things, but not necessarily to look smart, but because they want other people to feel some of that care for the same thing as they do. And then to trade geek areas. And we definitely noticed that Gen Z geeks out on lots of things. And even just this concept of being a geek, I think has changed. Like, You can be a geek in anything now. It's not just, oh, I like computers and blah, blah, blah. It's like at the camp that we had, we asked this question, what are you irrationally passionate about? And we had young people who were very passionate in STEM areas, but we also had young people who were passionate in the arts and we brought them all together and they all loved sharing that geekery with each other. And lastly, I will also say, and this is interesting, I didn't touch on this, but I started a charter school in San Diego that's been running for about 15 years now. Yeah, I I had a board meeting a couple nights ago. And when we started that school, we wanted a social emotional curriculum to be a real mainstay of the program. But when we were starting the school and when we were writing the charter 17 years ago, People didn't know what social emotional learning was. They didn't know why you would have in a classroom. There weren't curriculums that you could just pick up and use. So we had to like make a lot of what we were doing from scratch. And now it's totally normal. And what's so cool to see with the teams that we've been working with, like we had this camp, is their social emotional intelligence is ridiculously high. Like, We had a young person at camp who's having a hard time. And I think in the past, maybe this person would have been more like ostracized for it or picked on or something. And I just couldn't believe the amount of empathy these teens had. They were like, oh, they're having a hard time. And they went out and this one young person had to stay back and they brought her something. They like brought her a present. I was like, wow, they're so savvy in this way. And yeah, I think like the EQ has gone really up in Gen Z, which is a really big advantage. Plus that whole like being a geek is awesome now thing, I think is a super powerful combo. So you have people who are like deeply passionate about like what would have been traditional nerd spaces, but then add on a layer of emotional intelligence and you get these like super awesome humans. So I'm really excited to see like how that filters in 
as some of these people like become founders, move into industry, all kinds of things like having these extra layers that were not common before. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a like new rainbow horizon that we see here. Okay, maybe I'll I'll give it a little bit to Beatrice now to dig into some of the more exhoping your vision stuff. But that was oh, a hell of a lot of fun and I'm definitely gonna Google your charter school. That's hilarious. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's innovationsacademy.org. It's just it's there. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. It's really interesting to hear about all this work that you've done and the path to got you there also. I think I want to make sure that we have time to talk about some specific existential hope scenario. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll, I'm just going to dive straight into it. Sure. If you've been hanging around with Foresight for almost 20 years, you've thought about the future for quite a bit. So it would just be interesting to hear what your relationship to the future is. I'm guessing this is something you think quite a bit about. But yeah, if so, are you like dreading it? Are you excited for it? Yeah. What's your take on the future right now? Oh, that's a huge question. I am mostly hopeful and excited. We had a space summit over the summer and we got to watch two launches while we were there. And then we had this guy, Kiko, who is the VP of launch at SpaceX, come and speak to the young people we had. And man, he was just showing us, yeah, it used to be that you could only do a rocket launch at this long-term frequency because you can't reuse the rockets. And now that we can reuse them, we're doing it more and more. And he was basically just showing the the like, we're taking off, we're going to be doing launches multiple times a day kind of thing. And I was like, wow, that is really awesome and really neat to think about a lot of science and tech areas getting to a place where things are faster, cheaper, we can replicate them more. So I think that's really exciting. I am not in the crowd of that, I don't know, AI is going to destroy us sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm actually more nervous about more like governance collapse or things like war and what we're going through right now as having some catastrophic outcomes on some that have already been happening. So that those things definitely keep me up at night, but I also keep a very hopeful eye towards things like longevity. Yeah, and just different progress. I'm in the camp that like, I think like the next group down is going to get the like longevity boost. Like I'm like, so I'm in the like, all right, I think the teens I'm working with have a really good shot at it. And probably even some people who are like in their like late 20s, early 30s, maybe they have a shot. I'm not sure that I'm going to get that shot. So I'm a little bit sad about that. But I'm also I'm like excited that we're on the cusp of that kind of potential like health span longevity future as well. So those are a couple yeah, a couple of things. So some like really positive stuff and I'm nervous about where we are headed. Yeah, well, that sounds like a very, I think, level-headed or like reasonable approach or relationship too. And with the space stuff, like it's exciting to see that type of progress like in oh, yeah. one's lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. For AI, I just feel like whatever happens, it's going to get weird. Um, <laughs> That's true. It is going to get weird. I think, yeah, I. It, it's interesting. Oh man, there's yeah, there's like a bunch in that down that rabbit hole. It, yeah, I think it's I think it's going to get weird. And I also think there is probably going to be uh, sort of some splits of people of there's going to be like the we went down the AI rabbit hole and then there's going to be the like 
we went more in like the Amish direction rabbit hole. And I'm actually somewhere more on like the Amish side. Like I don't have, uh, yeah, I don't like I, and my home is dumb and I'm very happy having a dumb home and things like that. And yeah, but I'm like, I go back and forth on these things. I'm like, yes, I want Gen AI and like health tech to be intertwined with each other so that we can get rid of cancer. That sounds awesome. And at the same time, I don't necessarily want it in everything. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like the it's finding the right places to integrate the technology. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we always want to discuss, discuss here is the eucatastrophe concept. I don't know. You're probably familiar with it a little bit since you've... Uh, I don't think so. You guys have introduced me to so much language, like existential hope I had never heard until foresight. There was something else I learned at the first vision weekend I went to. Oh, it was like extitutions. That's it. Yes. I had never heard that before. I was like, so wait, what is, what's the phrase again? Ex- extitutions. Yeah. I think we need to do probably uh, an episode on that or something. It's uh, probably. But the word that, no, but the word that kicked this oh, up. I, oh, was... sorry. You catastrophe. Yeah. So it's basically. So like good um, catastrophe. Exactly. It's the yeah. opposite of a catastrophe. So yeah, yeah. it's event where like the expected value is much higher. And so we actually stole or borrowed should I say, the term existential hope from a paper by um, Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barrett, where they, it's called existential risk and existential hope, the paper. And in the paper, they also discuss this term of eucatastrophe. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that we'd just like to hear from you is if you have a, a vision of a eucatastrophe, that's something that when this has happened, I can see the world having this being a lot better off. So it's like an existential hope scenario, one could say. Oh, yeah. I guess what I don't, yeah, I'm hearing that question a little bit. What will be the thing that will get us there? And wow, I think one of the things, putting my venture capital hat on for a second, I think one of the things that gets us there is more funding for more weird stuff to experiment and try. And also actually, yeah, the other piece that I think gets us there, I would love to see more special economic zones. I would love, love, love to see more experimentation happening there. Because I don't know exactly what technological things need to happen. But what I know is that the our environment, even on reg, the regulatory side, needs to be such that we can try some really wild things uh, and see what happens. And if I put myself out and we talked about this at Vision Weekend, uh, what would I want that to look like? I'm in the like solar punk future. I'm like, OK, nature and industry is integrated. Energy is superfluous things like that. But I think to get there, we need a lot more experimentation and a lot more funding and less restriction. So I think that those are some key areas of how we get to something like a solar punk future. Yeah, I'm with you on the solar punk future. Do, do you have any specific ones that you're excited about that you would like to see economic experiments? Sure. Oh, gosh. Yeah, on the economic experiments, it's, it could be pretty broad. One thing that made the United States so great in the past is that it's the United States and that we could try different things. And I feel like we've gotten really far away from that. So I would love, it'd be really interesting to see if different states were saying, hey, in this state, you can, I don't even know, do more things on longevity. Or in this state, you can do a ton more in robotics. Or in this state, you can do this. And then it's like, all right, cool. Geeks go to your different states, start experimenting. Let's see what happens here. I think that'd be interesting. Of course, that's like a very hopeful 
how do we change governance question. But I know there are a lot of people thinking about how do we do these things. Yeah, I think it seems doable to some extent also in that it just takes, it's not just one big unified thing. Some people should be able to do some things and that could like... Governance is all made up anyways. Like we made it all up so we can make something different. Yes, that's the idea. So just so we have time to round off, what could you, it would be really nice if you have any like favorite resources. Uh, Do you have a favorite like movie that got you excited about the future or a book or something like that? Any resources you would recommend? This is a great question. Gosh, for me, it's actually always been very community driven. There used to be a group called Accelerating Change started by John Smart. That was a huge influence. I don't know if there are still resources online about that group at all. And that actually dovetails a lot into Foresight also. So to me, it's been very community driven. We used to have groups all across California when I was in my 20s that were like the San Diego futurists, the Bay Area futurists and things like that. And you'd get these people coming together and giving talks. And and actually, we'd have sci-fi authors come sometimes and, and talk about different arenas. I think sci-fi is actually a really interesting way to get interested in this question of what if and, and that question leading into what can future things look like. So I think those are actually some really great places to start. But for me, it's often been very community driven, but I'll have to think about are there certain books that I've read that have really thrown me out into a different future? Yeah, feel free to to email them to us or something. We'd love to share them. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It would, if you want to just also share how people can engage with your work, uh, that's a nice way to round off. Yeah, a couple of things. So there's 1517fund.com. I'm on Twitter as dstrackman. People can email me, Danielle at 1517fund.com. And yeah, those are a few areas we've on our website. We have a section with some long form writing that we've done. I think those are maybe I'm certainly biased. I think they're great because I wrote a lot of them. (laughs) But but yeah, those are some ways to engage. That sounds like a great place to to get started. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your existential hope vision. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.